we come to just three verses. Verses uh, chapter 1 in Colossians, verses 21 to 23. Here's what they say. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, so you've all heard of this guy, uh, George Washington Carver. I'm not going to belabor the point, but he was an uh, African-American scientist and naturalist who uh, spent his entire life studying the peanut. And um, when he looked at the peanut, he was able... I, I, I read this week that he, um, he patented over 300 inventions from the peanut alone, including he made milk from a peanut, Worcester sauce, cooking oil, salad oil, paper, cosmetics, soap, stains for, your, for wood, antiseptics, or antiseptics, uh, laxatives, and even goiter medication. So here's a guy who devotes his life to the peanut, something we call a snack. He looked at it and saw there's so much more happening here than just a snack. And that's good. And the reason this comes to mind as I'm reading this passage in Colossians is the gospel can be very simple. It's as simple as John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will have life shall never die, and so on. So the gospel is very simple. It can be enjoyed like a peanut, simply. You don't need to be a, a theologian. And yet, over and over, Paul tries to see, he seems like he wants to complicate this, this simple gospel. It seems some people really don't like theology. Some people, um, in fact, despise even the way I preach, because it seems like I'm overcomplicating. It's so simple, the gospel. Yeah, it is really simple. You don't need to go any deeper than the fact that you're a sinner in need of grace and Christ is your only hope of salvation. That's simple. However, what Paul does, much like Car Carver, is he says, yes, it's that good, but, but you have to go deeper. There are deeper things you, you need to understand here that will actually encourage your faith and undergird it. And as a result, here, what you're seeing, in fact, the whole, the whole book of Colossians is quite dense. I mean that, like thick in theology. But last week's was exceptional. <laughs> and from that, from Paul talking about who Christ is, remember that last week, it was all, the whole chapter or a few verses was riddled with the word him, 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 talking about Jesus, him, over and over. And now in these verses, there's a shift in the tense. He doesn't mention him as much. Now it says you, you, you. And so what he's doing is he's now saying, this is this glorious king that you should be thankful for because he has saved you. And now here is how it impacts you, 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 over and over. And so he is doing, in fact, it's a plural you as well. He's not speaking about you individually. He's talking to the church in Colossae. And so Paul goes deeper here. And he uses language that too often in the church we try to scrub out as Christianity. You'll know from me if you've been here for any length of time, I am not who one who believes that we have to change or to um, uh, use different words than what the Bible uses for things that the Bible talks about. Uh, I understand that we need to uh, at times, but it seems like it, but Paul doesn't do it. And he uses such specific words here that are big, complicated words that I could offer 30 minutes of just, I don't want to say dumbing it down, um, but I'm, instead I'm going to say this is why Paul uses this rich language, because sometimes complicated things require complicated language. And if you don't believe it, you've never talked to a physicist. 
I had a friend, in, uh, he's an aeronautic physicist, I don't know what he is, PhD. He makes rockets for the Canada Space Agency. And he would talk to me like I knew what he was talking about, right? And he was so much more intelligent than I'll ever be. And when I would say, can you dumb it down? He says, no. No, I can't dumb it down. It's a hard thing to understand. I can't dumb it down. <laughs> and so, I, and I don't think we, we, we don't want that. But let's look at what Paul says here. Because what he does, he explains the life of a Christian, the, the flow of it. And he says, all Christians move from alienation to reconciliation to preservation. He goes in that order. And those words, alienation, reconciliation, preservation, oftentimes churches say, well, let's not use words like reconciliation, because that's a big word. Let's just say getting right with God. No, we're going to keep reconciliation, because Paul does, and we're going to try to understand that instead. So we're going to do some hard work, specifically in the very first point, alienation. So I'm going to ask you to think with me, okay? Because Paul brings up this word alienation, and we could say other things, but what does he mean when he says alienation? So to get there, let me start with Frenchmen in the 20th century. Okay? Well, okay, Albert Camus, but let's keep it on his beautiful face. Look at that. That's a, that's a French philosopher. Look at that. Right? <laughs> so in the, in the 20th century, after years of, the, of, of philosophical movements, they have something that grows, out, grows called existentialism. And these guys are Camus and Sartre and all these other names. And they come up and they start using this word alienation. They start saying that the problem with humanity is we don't feel at home in the world. We're estranged. We're strangers in the world. And they develop this, this word alienation. So I'm gonna, first we're going to look at what they meant, and then you're going to go back and see why it is that they stopped, they scrubbed Christianity out of this idea. Because Christianity says more about alienation than any French philosopher ever could. But here's what they meant. And I'll use Camus' example. He said this. So you and I gain consciousness. We, we're born into a world that is meaningless, he says. The world is, is meaningless. It is cold. It's irrational. It's unordered. It's unloving. And so that's, that's the world we inhabit. There's no meaning in here. It's all randomness. However, you and I appear in this world, and we find that we have desires that are opposite to that world. We want there to be meaning. We want there to be love. We want there to be goodness and rationality. And so the contrast there, because we find ourselves in a world that has no meaning, but we desperately think there should be meaning, we are aliens in the world. We don't feel at home here because we want something. You know, you want good people to be rewarded, but that's not the way the world works. You want uh, there to be, uh, oh, I don't know, peace between the races, but that's not how it works. You want there to be reconciliation between uh, the white man and the indigenous people. That's not how it works. You want there to be reconciliation and peace within the human being, but there isn't. He says, so as a result, the natural order of man, says the existentialist, is alienation. You feel uh, like a stranger in the land, a wanderer in a land of wandering. Now, that's, that's good so far, because we would agree. Christians agree, and I'll get there. But what, where they break from us is their conclusion. You see, most philosophers are really good diagnosticians. They know there's a problem, but they can't really prescribe a good cure. So the existentialists in Camus say there's basically three options for you. Because the world is meaningless and there's no hope for you, everything you do will be forgotten, there's no point in trying to stop oh, sex trafficking. It's not going to work. Just don't bother. So you have three options in life. The first one is suicide. The first one they say, you know what? You're going to die either at 80 or at 15. doesn't really matter. Just do it whenever you want. Like, who cares? 
because whether you die of cancer at a ripe old age or at 15, it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to change. You're going to be forgotten. Nothing you're going to do is going to accomplish anything because the sun will one day go cold and we'll all die. Suicide. That's the first option. So the second option is something they call bad faith, meaning just ignore it. Just do what the Christians do, they said. You know, all the religious people, their response to meaninglessness is just make up a story to make you feel good. It's basically just go on a cruise and don't realize that the whole thing is swirling and flushing. Just, just pretend it's not true. Pretend there is life afterwards. Pretend your actions do have meaning. That's option two. The third option is what they call authenticity, which basically says um, stick your, well, we'll say it, uh, your, your thumb your nose at the world, right? They say the world is meaningless, but rage against the dying of the light. Accept the fact that your, mean, your life has no meaning, but do everything you want to do anyway and say, ah, the heck with the universe, I'm going to be the person I want to be. Three options. Now, the downside of all three of those options is none of them make any difference, right? So the existentialists, bless them, they understand we're alienated, but they can't really help the person who is struggling. So if somebody is up on a window ledge and saying, what's the point? I'm just going to end it. Now, the existentialist, if that's their friend, will want to say, no, it's, you should, don't do it, don't do it. But their philosophy is saying, just go ahead. It doesn't matter. So existentialists were a broody kind of bunch. It's not a wonder that most, a couple of these guys died screaming, terrified. Okay? It's not by accident. So enter now Christianity. Christianity has spoken about this idea of not feeling at home in the world forever. And philosophers know it, but they haven't decided to, to say, you know what, we're not going to think about the Christian answer because it's no good, right? The Christian answer is, it, it assumes there's a meaning in the world, and we know there isn't, so let's just pretend like Augustine and Tertullian and Scripture has said nothing about it, and the Jews had nothing to contribute. So they don't think about it. Of course, there are Christian philosophers trying to change that. But here is the Christian response to this. They say, hey, we are alienated. We do feel like we're not at home. And if you attended my night talks when I spoke about meaning, I point this out, that when Cain is thrust out from the presence of God in chapter 4 of Genesis, it says, where does he go? Remember, he goes to the land of Nod, right? What you don't see is that in the Hebrew it says he is a a nad in the world of Nod, meaning he is a wanderer in the land of wandering. Out of the presence of God, says the Bible, you are an alien. You've cut yourself off from the source of meaning, the source of all things, so it's right that you feel not at home because you're not at peace with the world, because you're not at peace with the source of all things. And in Genesis 3, it's very clear. There's four things you're alienated from. You're alienated from God, right? you, You realize you're now no longer comfortable and allowed to be in his presence unharmed after sin. He is holy, you are not. So you feel cut off from that, and then you're literally cut off when he pushes you out of the garden. So you are a wanderer. You're an alien. You're also alienated from nature, because now nature doesn't even listen to you. Now, far from yielding to your attempts to cultivate the ground, it actually resists you with weeds and thorns and with animals that want to bite you and hurricanes that seem to want, bent on destroying humanity. So we're alienated from God and from nature. We're nearly alienated from each other. And you see that immediately because Adam and Eve start blaming each other. They did it. He did it. They did it. Right? We no longer can get along with ourselves either because then notice what he does. Adam begins to hide. He covers himself. He doesn't even want to face his own nakedness. It's not just that he, he covers himself when God comes near. He keeps himself covered even when he's alone 
because he's no longer comfortable in his own skin. And this is what Scripture tells us about alienation. Now, why is this practical? And it is very practical. Because every day, Christian or not, you feel anxious in the world. You feel like, gosh, this world is hurling out of control. Your job doesn't satisfy you at some point in your life. Your marriage, at some point in your life, you say, boy, is this really as good as it gets? Everything, it happens to all of us, Christian or not. And those sorts of, the results of being alienated in the world, not feeling at home, drives us, if we don't know what to do with it, it drives us to drugs. It drives us to suicide. It drives us to abusing people. It drives us to bitterness and gossip and everything. And so Christianity says the opposite. It says, yes, feeling, feeling alienation is good and right. You should feel out of sorts because you you're, you're not right here in the world. However, it doesn't prescribe suicide and nothingness. It says, no, no, there's an option. And we're going to talk about that in point two when we get to reconciliation. But before I go there, let me say this. Here's why we need the word alienation. And you can't use the word that has become very common in churches. And it's not wrong to use this word, but I, don't, I, I fear it'll be used instead of alienation. It's this word, brokenness. Brokenness. It's everywhere, isn't it? The word broken broken. Not a bad word, because brokenness describes what we feel as a result of being alienated. But here's the problem. When I say the vase is broken, I only tell you the state of the vase. I don't tell you how to fix it. I don't tell you what it should look like. I don't tell you how it got broken. All I say is it's broken. And if that's all I do, if I'm speaking, if you come to me and I'm a guy who is a, a gambler, or, uh, or just somebody with uh, something we would consider minor, like gossiper, you know, somebody can't stop talking about other people. And we say, oh, you know, there's something broken in your relationship with money as a gambler. Listen, as a gambler, I understand what you mean, and that's better language, because I know something's broken because I don't have money or a family anymore. I see the evidence of my brokenness. However, if all I say is you're broken, then you're going to be under the impression that all you need to do is be fixed, and that doesn't go far enough. So as an example, when Scripture speaks about the, your state in the world, it doesn't say you're broken. Here's what it says. It says, you are rebellious, idolatrous, lost, enslaved, disobedient, adulterous, and dead. Now, if I go to the gambler and say, yeah, I'm listening, I hear what you've done, um, you're dead. You're disobedient. That's your problem. Your biggest problem is you're dead and you're an alien to God. That's your biggest problem. If I say that, of course, what do they say? Hold on. Hold on. The world out there, this therapeutic word, broken, tells me, yeah, there's a problem with my relationship, but surely I can just fix that with some, you know, maybe some yoga or meditation or some good habits. Do I really need... See, and then the gospel seems ridiculous to them. Because then you say, no, the Son of God had to die so you could stop gossiping. And you're like, whoa, it's a little excessive, isn't it? Really, the Son of God has to die because I like to talk about my neighbor? A little too much. You see, brokenness is a nice, easier way to start a conversation, but it'll never go far enough. Because if I only tell you you're broken, you're never going to see the gospel as the remedy. You're only going to see it as strange and excessive. What we need to realize is exactly what Paul says you're an alien. And when Paul says it, he's noticed what he says, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So, and we think about the order. You're an alien. And the reason is you're hostile to God. It's the word ekthros, which means enemy. 
You're an enemy of God in your mind, and that has led to your alienation. And because you're an enemy of God, you do bad things. What has made you an alien in the world is not that you do bad things. You hate God. You're an enemy of his. And because you're an enemy of God, you do bad things. It's a relational problem you have, not a behavioral problem. See, if we only tell people that the gospel solves behavioral problems, they're never going to accept it because all they want is to stop gossiping and gambling. They don't realize they're alienated from God. That's their biggest problem. And so when we lose the word alienation and these sorts of terms, we think we're gaining an audience with the world. But what they're doing is they're coming in, but they're never hearing the gospel. They're going to leave again. We, can't, we have to be very careful that we don't think that our job is to gain the ear of the world. It's not. Our job is to proclaim the gospel to the world. And we are all aliens without Christ. That's what Paul's saying. It's, it's so clear in, in, his, in his wording that it's hard to understand how we went the other way. And so the very first point is you and I are aliens in the world. This is the beginning of every Christian walk. Every salvation starts with knowing you're an alien. And you're, so an, you're an alien by your choice. Your behavior, didn't, it's not that you had a bad day and God said, oh, slipped up. No, you are an enemy of God. That's what alienation means. That's why you feel out of place in this world. The good news is there's hope, unlike the existentialist. And that hope is reconciliation. Now, in verse 22, Paul is so clear. I mean, he writes the sermon for every pastor. He says, very simply, he literally tells you what Jesus did, how he did it, and then why he did it. It's, I mean, I could have just preached that one verse. But alienated. In response to that, Christ then says, I'm going to come and reconcile them. So that's the first thing, right? What did he do? He reconciled people to himself. Now, a lesson on the word reconciliation. You cannot have reconciliation unless you had peace at one time. Okay? So reconciliation is what happens when you take two people who were once at peace but are now at war and you bring them back to a state of peace. You reconcile them. So I recently, and a lot lately, I've been having conversations with people asking about indigenous situations in Canada. How do you bring reconciliation in this situation? My first response is, you cannot, because there was never peace to begin with. We never had peace with the indigenous people. There was never peace. And so this is part of the problem, right? With existentialism as well, we look at the world, if you don't know what the state before it was, the peace looks like, how can you ever bring people back to it? You see, the reason we'll never, ever, ever be reconciled with people in the world until we're reconciled with Christ is because there's nothing to go back to. What are you going to go back to? Peace when? If you have to go back to human peace, you're only going to find it in the garden. So until there's reconciliation with God, there is no reconciliation in the world. Zero. Now, what the best you can do is what I had to do this morning. Okay? I woke up this morning and um, our back tire was like half flat, right? So there's a slow leak in it. But it was, I didn't have time to change the, put the old donut on there. So I, instead, I went and I just filled it up. But you know what? I'm going to go out after this service and it'll probably be down again. So I'm going to have to fill it up. And since I have to come back tonight and teach, and, and Tuesday I'm in London filming something, I have to do Mondays. I have to, I basically have to keep filling it up until Monday until I can change it, right? That's what I have to do. But you see what I'm doing? I'm not fixing the tire. I'm just filling it up. And until you and I and every person on this planet is reconciled with Christ, you're just filling up the tire. Indigenous people, and if you want, I don't know the language we use now, is it white people? Whatever it is, 
Um, listen, we can do our part to try to get together, but what we're going to keep doing is you're going to say you need this, we're going to try to help you, and then it's going to go well for a few years, then it's going to go down again, we're going to discover more graves of the horrors that we've done, and we're going to have to do more. You see, there will never be reconciliation. And I said it before, until we accept the son that was offered on the cross for us, we will offer up our sons and daughters on the altar of our wars forever. So reconciliation, when Christ comes, this is what he does, is he takes parties that are at war, man and God, and he brings them together again because there was once peace in the garden. He is recreating the conditions that were intended. You can have reconciliation with God because there was once filiation, I don't know what you call it, is that a word? I don't know about the word. But there was once peace. So reconciliation restores that peace. Now, it's what he did. Now, how did he do it? Paul is so clear. He did it in his body of flesh by his death. Now, here the language is very important. Depending on the English translation you have, if you have a more literal translation, like the ESV, King James Version, it says what I've just read, in his body of flesh by his death. If you have a more dynamic translation, so an NIV or an NLT, it says something to the effect of in his physical body. I'm not always a stickler, but here I'm going to be a stickler. It should say body of flesh. This is why. Well, first, that's what it says in the Greek. But this is why. When Paul wants to speak about, in all of his letters, about body, the body, of, be it Christ's or yours or mine, there's two options he can choose from in Greek. One is soma, which means body. That's your normal body. The other one is sarx, which means flesh. So the King James, ESV, some of these more literal ones will take that word sarx and make it flesh in your English. Now, I understand, remember this goes back, do we dumb down the words? Do we change them to say physical body? You can, and that's fine. The person can still be saved reading the NIV. That's not the issue. However, what you lose is the depth of what Paul is saying. Because if Paul wanted to say that it was in Christ's body, merely, like in, in Romans 8.3, I think he does, then he would have said in his soma. But when he says flesh, the word flesh is what Paul says when he's talking about our sinful nature. You and I are loaded with sarks, right? We're loaded with sarks, and that is flesh. So when he says here that Christ in his body of flesh, the human sinful nature, he's take, what he's saying is in the way he has reconciled you is he has taken on himself Sarks, human flesh. And he has dealt with it in his body by putting it to death. He, as the righteous one, died as if he were unrighteous. He who has known no sin became sin for us. And so the language is vital here. So what he has done is reconciled us. How he has done it is by taking on our sin and paying the price we deserve. Right? That's what he's done. We should be dead. He chose to die for us. That's how he did it. And then what he did, why did he do this? Paul again. He did this in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. I said this when I preach on marriage. I say it at weddings. I say it every time I can when I'm counseling couples. In Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, the purpose of marriage is our marriages are rooted in what Christ did when he married us. And Ephesians says he married you to make you radiant for himself. Doxa. To make you glorious for himself. And Paul echoes that here. He did it to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him, for himself. So what Christ did, Paul saying, is he looked at you, and what he did is he saw something that was dirty and wanted to clean it for himself. He saw something that was crooked and wanted to straighten it. He saw something that was dead and wanted to bring it to life for himself. 
And he paid the price so that you could be holy, which means perfect. He's, going, he's making you perfect. He has bought that for you by, on the cross. Blameless, meaning no guilt. No guilt anymore. And above reproach, meaning there's no skeletons in the closet. So when you're going through your life as a very practical person, and your enemy comes and tells you, God, he couldn't have died for you. Look at you. Look at the way you live today. You are above reproach in Christ. Meaning all of those, here's one thing you know. No matter how much the accusations hurt when somebody calls you and drags up your past or your actions, what you can at least say is, yes, that's exactly who I am. But in Christ, I'm above reproach. You have no more, there's no more uh, claim you can make against me. And Christ did all of this for you. He bore the cost of reconciliation. Here's what I know as well. You want reconciliation in the world, it's only going to come when people do what Christ did, which is bear the price of it themselves. Christians are called to bear the price of peace in the world. Who's going to get beaten for the sake of peace? I don't know, but it should be us. I don't like it. But that's the gospel, that we are to reconcile the world. So, we are aliens. He has reconciled us. And from there, we move into the very last verse, which is a very long one. I don't think Paul took the time to breathe. Uh, verse 23 is long. And that verse tells us then, okay, you've, you're alienated. Now you've been reconciled. Now here's how you live. Here's how you live as a reconciled person. And here we see the great tension in Scripture all throughout, this idea of preservation and perseverance together. So what Paul does here in this particular passage, he will balance later in other books, not later, sometimes before, in other letters. And so what he says here is very simple in verse 21 or 23. He emphasizes what you need to do. Listen, you've been a Christian and now there's expectations. Now that you've been saved out of gratitude, you ought to do some things. And specifically, he uses language of building. He says, you have to stand upon the hope of the gospel, which we talked about last week, which is eternity, sin, sinlessness, living with Christ forever. That's the hope you stand on. But you have to stand, as he says, stable, which is a word for foundation, steadfast, which means firm, and unshifting, meaning like you're on stable ground. So your job is to stand on the, on the gospel and not move as best you can. That's what we're called to do. And there is a very real sense in which you must cling to the cross. We have to do it. This is what Christians do. It's not, you don't cling to the cross to save yourself. We're going to see that in a minute. What you do is, this is when you know, if you're out at sea and you're holding on to a life preserver, you certainly know that you're not the one keeping you alive. It's a life preserver. But you cling to it because you know it's your only hope. And Christians do this. We know in the world, having been reconciled now, we owe everything to God. And so we cling to him at every moment we can. And that's simple reality. And this echoes verse 11. We talked about a couple weeks ago that when Paul says, you need all the power, the majestic power of the Spirit for endurance and patience. Right? And I see too many people say, no, no, no. You've, you've got everything in Christ now. You have health and wealth and you have to claim it because it's yours. Stop that talk, please. That's not what Paul says. Time and again, what he is saying is, you have to continue to cling to Christ. He has to come into you just to keep you afloat. And your job is not to call the power of heaven down. That's not your job. If he wanted you to have that power, he would have given it to you immediately. He doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he says, cling. And this is why. Well, there's so many reasons why. 
But here's the, the greatest reason that I've used this example so often. People often say, listen, if you're, I had a woman in a, my first church who was struggling with um, chronic back pain. She was in a car accident as a teenager, and now in her 60s, she was still struggling, hunched over, couldn't walk. And she said, Pastor, if I only knew why, why? I've been to healers, I've done everything. Is it because I have lack, do I lack faith? What's the problem? And I said, listen, <laughs> I don't know everything. I don't. I don't know why God does what he does and permits what he does. Here's what I do know, though. You're, she was walking with a cane. And I said, what if God came to you and said, you're walking with a cane because what's going to happen is at 19, it's going to stink. But when you're 66, you're going to be walking in Toronto and you're going to be, because you're hunched down, you're going to see a lottery ticket. You wouldn't have seen it otherwise. But because you're hunched over, you're going to see a lottery ticket and then you're going to get it and you'll be a billionaire. If he had told you that when you were 19, would you believe it? She said, well, of course. I said, then why would you endure patiently? She said, for the money. I said, exactly. If you knew what he was trying to give you at the end, what the goal was at the end, you wouldn't have faith in him. You'd have a desire for the money out of greed. That's why you would, that's why you would persevere. What happens in faith is he says, I'm not going to tell you why it's happening. You need to trust that I know you better than you, and there's a good plan at the end. That's all you're asked to do is cling to the truth of who I am. That's it. You don't need to know. I'm not giving you power to call it down and see a guy who's going to yell fire and you're going to fall over and you're going to be healed. That's not what he does. He says, faith, trust me. Because he's not trying to make you whole now. He's trying to make you faithful. He's trying to make you a person who trusts him and not just some kind of power he's giving you. Is that making sense? So, it's so clear in scripture and it's such an easy thing to be fooled into thinking that our job is to call down and access some great treasure as if Christ has this grand treasure in heaven, he says, only if you have enough faith, I'll give it to you. Come on. That's not the God we serve. It's the God who says, trust me, I've got it all. So we have to persevere. However, persevere or is not all of it. In fact, the great reformers talked about, you know, everybody hates Calvin, right? Then he says, perseverance of the saints is the pea on tulip. I don't love the word perseverance because I think it's better understood as preservation of the saints. Because in Philippians 1, 6, Everybody knows that if you're a Christian. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Meaning, he saved you, he's going to finish you. If he saves you, he's going to keep you. So all at once, here's the paradox. I have to cling to the cross, because that's what faithful people do. That's evidence of trusting God and nothing else. And yet, he says, but if you are mine, I'm never letting you go. Never going to let you go. You're mine. I started this work, and I'll finish it. I am faithful. I can be trusted to do this. He, he preserves us in this. And this is why we love that old hymn, right, as Christians. Great is, well, it's not that old, actually, only about 100 years old. Great is thy faithfulness. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. See, the presence of God, not to heal and to give wealth, to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. This is what the perseverance of the saints is. The perseverance and the preservation of the saints is God saying, I have taken an alien and I've made them my own and I'm never letting them go. I will preserve them. Yes, you've got to cling to me, but not to be saved, you're already saved. How many people have fallen? How many people at the, at the end have not died well? Do we think that because, oh, at the end they said the wrong words, they're not saved? I don't, I'm not so sure. And I'll close with this last thing. You may have heard me say this before. During the Reformation, when the Catholic Church and reformers were at war, literally in some cases, sadly, 
there was four men who were about to die at the stake in France, Protestants. And these four men were about to die, and they heard that John Calvin and all these wise theologians were talking about um, assurance. And they were thinking about, are we we right? Can we lose our salvation or not? They were going to gather and talk about this. These men send a letter to Calvin and say, Mr. Calvin, whatever you do, please don't tell me that I am not safe in the arms of my God. Because, and it's so touching, what they said was, we're going to be burned at the stake in a couple days, and when my flesh is being charred off my body, I may say anything. I don't know what I'm going to say. I may curse God. I need to know that his grip on me is tighter than my grip on him. I need to know that no matter what I say, he will complete the good work he started in me. And I understand if people say you can lose yourself. I get where you're going with that. If you can lose your salvation, you have a very dismal life. He's holding us, holding us so tightly. He'll never let us go. But that doesn't mean knowing that we have this grace doesn't give us license to sin. In fact, listen, this is the simplest way. And I don't know who's saved. I don't know who's saved in this room, but I know this. When I was saved, the last thing I thought was, well, how do I get around it now? How do I take advantage? How do I find out what the bare minimum is I have to do? Right? And that's not, I understand that. I do understand that temptation. But I don't know who's saved, but I do know this. Salvation doesn't drive you to try to find ways to abuse the grace, but instead to give above and beyond it and say, how do I serve this guy rightly? How do I serve this king who has done all this for me? That's what salvation does. And I do it knowing that if I fail, he's still holding me. It's the preservation of the saints. Very simple. If you're a Christian, rejoice. If you're not a Christian, listen, you've felt this. You know you're a stranger in the world. And you also know that Camus and Sartre and Heidegger and all these philosophers, as clever as they are, the best they can do is say, take a razor blade in the bathtub. It's the best they can come up with. Really? That's the best they can come up with. You don't need to be a philosopher to know that that is ridiculous. The reason you feel like there is a home for you in this world is because there is, but it's found in Christ and in nowhere else. Let's pray.